hello. Welcome back to another episode of Working Wife, Happy Life. I am your host, Bethany Baines. Spring is in the air. You can hear my landscapers outside, so hopefully it's not too distracting. But we have hit the one-year mark, marking this pandemic's beginnings of reality here in the U.S. And while many of us are hitting a wall, there's definitely a feeling of hope abounding. So hope that we can be with one another again soon without fear and hesitancy. A hope that we can return to work and school as normal. A hope for small businesses and communities and those hit hardest that we can rebuild. But that said, the wall is real. I definitely hit it this past week. And when I say that I slept for 12 hours and took naps, I mean, I slept. And I'm sure for any of you out there with young kids, that sounds super obnoxious, but I do promise that your time will come when your children will let you sleep in. And then you too can relish in the most joyous moment of getting to wake up your own children. But back to burnout, Uh, this episode is all about burnout, and our guest really breaks down what this term means. Paula Davis is the founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, a training and consulting firm that partners with organizations to help them reduce burnout and build resilience at the team, leader, and organizational level. She's had an incredibly impressive journey from law firms to working with the military to founding her own institute and author of her new book, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. Throughout this conversation, we dissect and define this common phrase, burnout. We differentiate it from stress in ways that it is actually not a you problem, meaning it's a symptom of the system, not an indication of you not being able to hack it. Thank God. Please take a listen to further understand what you as an individual and you as a leader can learn about burnout, how to recognize it, how to avoid it, and most importantly, how to address it. Enjoy my conversation with Paula. Um, Paul, I'm so thrilled to have you on on the podcast. Welcome. And I'm so excited for this conversation today. So thank you for making the time. Oh, I'm so happy to, Bethany. Um, Obviously, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So we'll have a good conversation. Awesome. Um, So you are the founder of the Stress and Resilience Institute. And you have a new book coming out titled Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. Uh, and frankly, I can't think of a more relevant topic right now. It, it seems like, I mean, this whole past year has felt like this is such a relevant topic, but it also seems in particular there's a wall that's happening right now. Um, and I would just love to to hear from you, um, your, your background and the work that you do, and also why this topic is so critical and relevant right now. Yeah, so they always say timing is everything, right? And so I um, I actually burned out during what became the last year of my law practice about 10 years ago. So that that is what kicked me into this entire, you know, kind of second career. And um, so I, I have learned a lot in the 10 years that I have been studying and researching and talking to other people about burnout. And it's funny because I started writing the book um, probably November, December of 2019. Mm. Obviously, no way to predict what we were all about. Um, to experience. And so, um, you know, 
kind of going through this time, writing a book about burnout um, really helped to shape some of the lens through which I I looked at the material and gave me some additional things to think about, um, you know, mm -hmm. like what's the future of work going to be going forward and how, you know, burnout was a huge issue before the pandemic. Um, and what, how, how are we going to talk about it and treat it almost, um, you know, after we're done? Right. And, and I feel like it's becoming much more um, possible to talk about because of this yeah. universal factor where we've all been thrown into being asked to just do too much every day, all the time. Um, yeah. And if I think if there's a silver lining to what has happened, I, I always try to try and find something like that. I think that it has exposed and really opened up some eyes and ears among leaders and people in organizations to really think like, oh, okay, we, re we really have to start addressing our part in some of these issues. And, and you know, leaders themselves are feeling the the exhaustion and, and whatnot as well and so i think for the first time we are all at every level in the organization kind of feeling this this stress and pressure and going oh this is sort of what has been going mm -hmm. on all along um and so i'm finding the conversations good yeah i and it's interesting because when you you know you mentioned that you were in law and certainly that is an industry that is notorious for long hours, brutal conditions, um, really challenging work. Um, there's other industries. I actually studied social work in college, and uh, one of my emphases was on burnout in mm -hmm. that field. And so I feel like this is something that we used to associate with certain fields, um, but is now something, and even pre-pandemic, that seems to be happening more broadly or at least being spoken about more broadly. Um, what do you think some of the ties are to that more like expansive nature of this sentiment? Is it willingness to discuss? Is it technology? You know, this always on atmosphere? What do you think has evolved in that sense? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. And, you know, if you trace the research on burnout back to kind of when it started in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that was really how burnout was conceptualized. It was this sort of healthcare, you know, mm -hmm. um, health care related focus, this sort of a helping profession sort of issue. And I think just as you know, the research evolved and as the world of work evolved, um, you started to hear people in other industries saying, no, wait a second, like I'm feeling the same cluster of issues as well. I'm seeing the same constellation of things. And then the research just kind of grew alongside of, of some of those stories to now where I tell people, if there is a workplace, you could have burnout. It has nothing, it, it really is expanding. It's any industry because, you know, when you look at the formula that causes it, and it applies to anybody who has a job. So it's really not just um, something that's limited to a certain group or a certain profession. Yeah. Now you just referenced the word formula, like what it, t let's dig in there. Yeah. So here's, if, if nothing else comes from my book, this is the big message that I want to, one of the big messages that I want to put out there with regard to what we know about burnout and where I think organizations have gone really wrong with it is that we have been talking about it as this individual sort of self-help 
kind of Mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to just get better at managing your stress. And I certainly felt that when I burned out, right? I took, after I was done and was in my recovery, I was like, wow, where did I mess up somewhere along this line? Because how did I get here? And it's all me. Um, But that really, and so what organizations do then is they, you know, talk about wellness apps and, you know, meditation and yoga, which are great things to do. They're just the wrong remedies to address burnout because it's, it's really not largely of our own individual making, it's much more so a systemic problem that needs systemic uh, ways to solve it. And so from a formula standpoint, we know that burnout is more likely to happen when you have too many job demands and too few job resources. So these are defined terms in the research. So a job demand is anything about your work that takes consistent effort and energy right? It can just be answering emails all day. Uh, I have no boundaries, Um, cranky colleagues, you know, we can all list, you know, 25 job demands that we have pretty quickly. But then our job resources are all the energy giving and motivational aspects of our work. And most of us don't have nearly enough of of those. And so we're we're completely seesawed when -hmm. it comes to how we're experiencing things. And I think that's part of why people feel this sense of burnout more in the pandemic is because our demands seem to have grown and they've grown in different ways, but our resources have shrunk because we can't handle and manage the stress in the same way that we used to. We can't just like, you know, go out to dinner with a couple of friends and vent and just, you know, kind of, you know, connect on the weekend. We, you know, a lot of our paths to do that are, are gone. And so that's really the formula to keep in mind. Yeah. And it's such a, I mean, it's something that's so relatable regardless of what industry you're in and, and even beyond work, right? The systemic aspect of, of home, home care and home maintenance and home work right now, particularly in the midst of the pandemic, everyone's feeling this pressure of, as I said before, being asked to do way too much with, with far too little. And it's almost reminiscent of, you know, I, I do a lot of work and a lot, have a lot of conversations in the space of um, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And again, I feel like many times the solutions, and I think this is evolving a bit now, which is a great thing, but the solutions really started at you know, confidence training for women and, you know, like college outreach to get more applicants, like those types of things, which are important and great programs, but they're not the issue. They're the symptom. Yes. And that's, that's, I love how you, you use that term very intentionally because that's the same problem that we have with this discussion about burnout. We're focused on the symptoms and the symptoms of burnout or the dimensions of burnout are chronic exhaustion, chronic cynicism, where, Mm -hmm. you know, people just bug us and, you know, we just are detaching from the people who, you know, give us a lot of, you know, zest and enthusiasm in our work and things like that, um, which leads to a sense of lost impact, sort of like why bother, who cares? So people at the, if you're taking a surface level approach to burnout, it's really important to know what those symptoms are. But what happens is that people tend to glom onto, especially just the exhaustion piece and go, oh, well, this is just um, a syndrome of exhaustion. And so we, again, revert back to some of those self-help tools like sleep more and exercise more to fix it. When in reality, we're not, we're not digging into the causes at all. We're just sort of like skimming the surface of what it is and not really understanding what's driving underneath it. Yeah. And I think for, for those that are listening who are leaders, this is such a critical space because it's a, it's a, 
it's a sign of your organization versus the individuals within it. They're reacting to something that is is a much deeper issue. And and you've actually worked with several, you highlight a few different organizations that you've worked with, um, including the Mayo Clinic, the U.S. Army, uh, Trivago, which is a Germany uh, German-based um, uh, travel company, correct? Yes. Um, and yeah, more yeah. And I, I'm curious because, again, what I really find so uh, compelling about your work is just how universal this is across so many different types of organizations and really could be relatable to to any industry. hundred percent. And I in each of those each of those different organizations, um, you know, sort of brought a different flavor of something to the book. Um, you know, where I was talking about Mayo Clinic, it was, you know, really just anecdotally relating, um, you know, a, a study and a number of studies that have been done on their part showing like, hey, we actually took it upon ourselves to start taking the systems-based lens um, for burnout. And here's what happened. Here's what we did. And we found some tremendous results from it. So they really focused on, you know, kind of the problem side of the equation, the, the burnout piece and getting their arms around it. The U.S. Army said, why don't we focus on the solution side, for example? And that's not to say that Mayo didn't incorporate solutions either, but the Army said, wow, we've had our troops experience, you know, years and years of years of, of high op tempo. Their mental health is wearing, they're stressed what kind of program can we create that's systemic that will address that? And that's where, you know, the resilience piece of the puzzle really came into play and why it factors in for me so much in terms of my own model that I put out in the book for why, um, you know, why we have to focus on resilience as being a key component and then, you know, applying it systemically, essentially. So each each one of those pieces were, were very interesting. And then I, I interviewed the CEO of, Trivago and and he you know it, it was fascinating for him to say you know our business changed overnight we're a travel based company and instantly we had to pivot um, and he was fantastic because he talked about the role that like meaning and purpose was really playing for the for the organization because I asked him is it even right to be focusing on meaning and purpose right now because you know, everybody's experiencing such tremendous effects from the pandemic. And he said, it's one of the things that's keeping us going. You know, mm -hmm. we get to reimagine what people will be, what people's travel experiences will be looking like in the future. And we can help innovate that and, you know, draw the conversation out and be a leader in that space. So it was just very different, you know, ways to kind of look at the look at the issue across three very different industries. Yeah. And, and that's that's where I think the the fundamental of what you're doing is really uh, in service to humanity and the impact that it has on, I mean, frankly, the global economy because it hits on every industry. And I thought what was really interesting in the work with the U.S. Army is that they brought families into that. And, and I'm curious if that was you know, the, the nature of being, a, you know, a soldier or being in military service where a lot of times your family is kind of along for the ride. And so, but, but obviously anyone who is having challenges at work that inherently is brought into your home, right? You know, I know everyone tries to have these divisions, but that, that seems like it's a very, you know, you're, you're talking about 
ecosystems and you're talking about like all of these things that are lumped together. So I thought that was really fascinating that there was a family emphasis there. Yeah. And it would, I mean, it would be nice if we could just have these barriers come up, you know, we leave work and none of our work stress will ever come home. And then we go to work and none of our home stress will ever come to work. And we know that that, we know that that happens. And of course, how stressed you are at home is going to influence how stressed you become at work and vice versa. And, uh, you know, that was, I think one of my favorite aspects of how the military program evolved was to um, to really draw in the spouses because they play such a critical role, as you mentioned, in, in the military family unit. And they oftentimes are the ones who are going to see potential issues or problems come up in their spouse that they can then address with some of these skills much quicker than the workplace, them the workplace itself, and so arming them with tools, and and it's not even it's not even just identifying a problem and trying to fix it. It's it's not getting to the problem in the first place. It's like if we can practice some of these tools as a family unit, we can, can we can communicate better. We can think through. Uh, challenging scenarios together in a better way. Um, we can create, we can use our strengths. We can talk about what that means. And we can create this lovely, um, you know, sort of co-created space where we are, um, you know, kind of moving in a little bit of a different direction and a little bit more resilient, you know, in mm-hmm. an intentional way. And so it was just a phenomenal, it was just a phenomenal offshoot of the program. Yeah. And it's something quite honestly that I, that I would love to, and I've tried to do it in the, in the legal industry and I've had a couple of programs and not, not many takers, but it's, it's the next, it's, it's an extension of, of the work that I'd like to do in organizations. Yeah. And I also think what's interesting for those of us that are able to work remotely during this time is our families have no choice to but, but to now be involved in our work and and vice versa, right? Our work has no choice about children being involved. Exactly. So, you know, it's interesting. Like I've seen even with my children that they have a much deeper understanding of what I do um, and, you know, just being involved in some of the more um, progressive nature of projects over time. And so I think there's like a whole interesting other side of that where, you know, again, looking for these silver linings, what are the benefits we can pull from this time to think about kind of the whole the whole being, the whole worker? Well, and I love the fact too that I think one of the biggest things that I have seen is that we're starting to reintroduce some of our humanness back into the equation. I think we were, we've ushered out um, and we've tried to engineer out um, the human aspects of our work and who we are and what we do and that we have this whole life outside of work and that we've got kids. And I mean, I know busy um, professionals, busy women professionals who don't want to talk about their kids at work because they think that it it puts them in a different light that, that a leader or that a colleague is going to see them as not as serious or, you know, somehow focused on their family when they need to be like, you know, just hard charging and, you know, gutting it out at work. And, this has exposed all of that, right, for mm-hmm. for everybody. And it's interesting because, um, you know, back to, um, you know, Axel, the CEO of Trivago, he was just on the news in a very prominent way, I believe, in the last couple of weeks because he was giving an, uh, an interview on CNN. And his his child came in and he ended up just scooping him up and sitting him on his lap while he did, while he did the interview. And I know my daughter, I have an almost five-year-old daughter has sat next to me on a number of calls and she's like, mommy, mommy, I want to say hi to everybody. And um, I love that we're seeing everybody's just real messiness. You know what I mean? Like our house isn't clean and, uh, you know, we're trying to just, you know, 
keep it together and order groceries and do all of that. And it's like, that's who we really are. And I think if we can preserve some of that as we usher through this, I think it's going to be a help. Yeah. And I think what you're hitting on too, is that there is of course added chaos in this time, 100% with, with a multitude of different areas, whether it's school or, or, you know, people's health, et cetera. But the truth is this stuff has always been happening. There's always been distractions. There's always been pulls in multiple directions. Um, It's not just women. Luckily, it's more and more a, a lot of men. But I do think that understanding, like you're saying, it's bringing back that empathy, bringing back that realness, bringing back like the the humility and the humor of it too, where it, it's kind of, I, I hope shifting the face of work away from such a serious business because we can have fun and be real people and still get a tremendous amount of work done. And in fact, probably better work because we're more comfortable just being ourselves. Oh, a hundred percent. It's like, if I can bring my authentic self to work, if I can bring the fact that, you know, I'm the mom of however many kids or that, you know, here's what's going on in my life. If I can, if I can bring that to work, that's great. That that's, that's a win. That's a win-win I think in, in my opinion. And so, um, you know, I think again, it just underscores how, how critical and valuable that aspect of, of things really becomes or has become. And I think it also highlights too that I think a lot of us were really struggling before the pandemic hit. I mean, I think just trying to juggle it all and, you know, not even having to deal with the homeschool with the kids and, and balancing that with work, you know, before the pandemic hit, we're still, you know, have the whole swirl of just, you know, trying to get it done and, and be good at life and, and do a good job at work. And I think that um, there was, a you know, certainly from a burnout rates perspective, certainly happening before the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic yeah. did not, you know, cause burnout. So, um, you know, I hope that conversation continues too. Let's let's shift a little bit here because you, you use a lot of terminology and I think your words, I, I mean, I think words in general really matter, but I think the words in this topic really matter. Um, because burnout is not stress and stress doesn't equal burnout. I think those are two things that people use interchangeably, but I'm curious your perspective on those two terms. Yeah. So stress can apply to a whole host of of different things. It can apply to um, little episodic issues that we experience during the day. Like I'm in a, I'm in a traffic jam or, you know, I can't find a parking spot, you know, going somewhere or, you know, big stressful things can be, you know, a divorce or, you know, just a challenging thing that you're going through, but you don't necessarily have burnout associated or tied to those types of things. Um, One of my favorite definitions of stress is, um, something it's something that happens it's what happens when something that you care about is at stake Mm. Um, so that can be prompted by a whole host of things and with burnout we're very specifically talking about chronic stress within the workplace. And so what happens is that we start to use the term burnout loosely, like we just have a bad day and we'll we'll say, oh my gosh, I'm so burned out, or I've, I've just finished my busy season and just say, I'm so exhausted, I'm so burned out. And you may be, but you likely aren't. And so... So using those terms interchangeably, um, using burnout to describe any manner of stress um, isn't the right way to think about it. And I always, I, kind of a rule of thumb, I tell people that all burnout is stress. So it's the manifestation of chronic workplace stress, but not all stress is burnout. Right. So we can't use them going both directions all the time. Yeah, that makes sense too, because I do feel like 
and I'm curious your perspective. This is a little bit of my my self help moment in these types of conversations. But there's certain part there's certain types of stress that I actually thrive on, right? Like yes. there's certain like I get energy from whether it's a deal that you know you're you're cramming to close, or even just sometimes the the multitude of asks in my life. While it can feel overwhelming, sometimes I feel really accomplished. I feel really needed. I feel really. Um, driven in those moments. And I used to say, like, I like the days that make me sweat, right? Like those days where you're just like, you just, that to me is a, a good stress because I feel productive. Um, how as an individual, and I know you do a lot of work with organizations and I want to get back to that, but before we pivot there, how as an individual do I recognize, you know, a, a stressor versus real indications of burnout, um, cause I, I want to kind of drive toward how our listeners could recognize which, which emotions they may be feeling. Um, and also there's challenging environments in terms of how you, you can communicate that to try to help yourself. Yeah. So there's, um, so really if you're, if you're looking at when does it, when does it become something that is stress into something that's leading into burnout. I think it goes back to, and here's where the symptoms can help you. Mm -hmm. It sort of goes back to those three big symptoms, right? Are you feeling chronically, physically, and emotionally exhausted? So this isn't, again, burnout isn't something that just springs up and happens to you one day. It's usually something that's been manifesting for a period of time. So, and, and we don't have an indicator. I don't know. I can't tell you, does it, is that five months? Is it, you know, a year that you're feeling this? It's, it's different for everybody. Um, but that you have nothing that you do your traditional ways of, of coping and using, you know, self-care strategies aren't working anymore. Mm -hmm. So you're just finding that no matter what you do, you, you can't recover. You just don't feel like you have any sort of pep or energy. So for me, like um, when I was burning out, I used to play co-ed softball and co-ed touch football with my friends and just generally hang out with them on the weekends. And I stopped doing that as much because it just felt so wearing. And I wanted mm -hmm. to just sit on the couch and watch bad reality television, which is a very bad recovery activity, actually, <laughs> according to the research. I think little doses of it are fine, but if you're doing it all the time, probably not great. Um, and then if you start to notice again, the sense of chronic cynicism, right? The people who you loved, you're now like, eh, you know, I could deal with you less. And especially since this is a workplace phenomenon, if you're noticing that with your clients, whether it's your internal business mm -hmm. clients, whether it's your external clients, whether it's your colleagues at work, you know, I was always the one saying, hey, let's, you know, go grab lunch on Friday or have a beverage at the end of the day. And I stopped wanting to do all of that because everyone just became really annoying to me. Yeah. Um, and then if you, because of that, notice the sense of like, what am I doing here? Like, I don't feel like I'm having an impact anymore. This isn't meaningful why bother, who cares kind of a sentiment. That's that cluster right there are the three big symptoms of burnout where you know, like if you're starting to feel those pieces, you've probably now traveled away from just general stress and you're into something that maybe looks a little bit more like burnout. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, I think we can all relate with sentiments like that, but what you're describing is this kind of sustained, yes. that kind of becomes your whole being, whether it's the things that used to drive joy or used to drive energy are now becoming um, uh, a drain. And I, I saw a tweet and I can't remember if I've shared it on this podcast before, but it's it's not exactly to burn out, but it reminds me of this where it says, you know, if if you hate everyone, it's probably time to eat. If you feel like everyone hates you, it's probably time to sleep. Ah, <laughs> like, that is 
great. <laughs> Such a perfect guide because, you know, you just, you do have those moments where everyone drives you nuts or you feel yes. like everybody's against you, but it's not, that's not an acute moment. That That's the opposite of what you're describing, right? That's something where we feel like we can do something and recover from it. And you're saying when you do those things, you're not getting the recovery. It's indicative of something much deeper. Yes. And that's, you said it in such a beautiful way. And it is, uh, we all have bad days. We have bad weeks, you know, we have bad months sometimes. And, and, you know, it just depends on what's going on in your life and what the different stressors are. And we all have, um, you know, moments like that and even extended moments like that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's burnout present. So the way you described it was beautiful. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'd love to understand. So say I'm listening and I am feeling that, yeah, I actually am having these sustained moments. Um, what are some of the ways, because you, you talk about a term called psychological safety, which we actually talk about a lot at Google, and I don't know how prevalent that terminology is. Um, how do I, as an individual, if I'm feeling burnt out, think about approaching my workplace with these concerns and how does psychological safety play into that? Such a great question. Um, I think the genesis for a lot of what um, the research on psychological safety has been ongoing for quite some time, but I think where it really became something that vaulted into our more of a popular mainstream message was when Google actually did a study. Google did a study of sort of what creates a high performing team because they wanted to know if we could design the environment that would create the best type of team, what would that be? Is it a mix of introverts and extroverts? Is it a mix of, you know, mostly women and a couple of men on the team. I mean, they looked at all of these different combinations and they couldn't unlock anything meaningful until they factored in psychological safety. So psychological safety, I just define as trust at the team level. So Mm -hmm. if I'm somebody who's feeling burned out or I'm just feeling off or different and I want to have a conversation in a high psychological psychologically safe environment, those conversations become pretty easy. I feel very comfortable going to a leader, to a colleague, to somebody and saying like, look, here's what's going on. Can we just have a talk about what this looks like? In a low psychologically safe environment, it's going to be very hard to make those types of conversations happen because I just don't have the trust built up in the environment to feel comfortable doing that. And that's really, it's hard and it's sad because, um, you know, one of the things that I have discovered both for myself and the people who I've interviewed, um, especially if you feel okay, but you're noticing something about other people. So this goes in a lot of different directions. I Mm. could feel burned out myself and need to say something. I could feel fine, but notice a colleague who's not doing so well and want to say something to him or her. And so all of these types of conversations are important that need to be had. And I just with resounding clarity from people have said, I really appreciate when so-and-so pulled me aside and said, uh, you know, thank, you know, you're one instance, one story in the book, um, it was a banking executive and she was into a burnout, but wasn't, you know, hadn't identified it yet. And apparently her internal eye rolling had started to become more visibly um, <laughs> external <laughs> to other people. And so she had a colleague pull her aside and, and the way the colleague put it, she said, you're starting to remind me of my third grade teacher and that's not a happy memory. Oh my gosh. So, so that was her way of, of basically saying, look, what's going on. And she kind of did it in a funny way. And the person who was called out, she said, I am so thankful that my colleague did that because I didn't realize that I had started to be more externally visible with with my stress and what have you. And so um, I, I also include a template in the book for 
having and sort of putting together these types of conversations. And so they're hard for a lot of people to have. We kind of don't know what to say or how to get started. We're, you know, the stigma piece of outing yourself and, and saying that I'm not functioning well or not happy is there. I get it because I, I, I felt that. Um, and so I think that being able to feel comfortable kind of pushing through all that and having at least, you know, a little template of how do I talk about this can be really helpful for people. Yeah. So. And I think you're, there's so much wrapped up in that feeling of I am the failure. I'm yes. doing something wrong. Everyone else seems fine. And you don't know what they're hiding as well that maybe hasn't manifested itself externally yet. And so on that topic, kind of switching more toward leaders, because you do a lot of work across organizations. Um, why is it like, what are the things that leaders should be looking out for? One, both for their organization, obviously, you know, emotional and mental and physical well-being will ultimately reap rewards in terms of production. Um, but also, I feel like sometimes as leaders, we're not really given permission to take stock in how we feel and how we're doing. And so I would feel like these engagements with, with your work would actually allow those leaders to take those moments for themselves too, to think about how they're surviving or thriving within the environment. A hundred percent. And I mean, and that's part of my message to leaders is you've got to get your own house in order before you are effective at modeling and demonstrating some of this to other people. And I think it, it starts with, um, you know, all of, all of us, the internal sort of individual work that comes with, you know, preventing burnout is the deeper work of understanding like how do what how do we think under stress and pressure what are some of my counterproductive thinking styles um you know am i catastrophizing am i overthinking situations am i using am i falling into thinking traps like am i jumping to conclusions a lot with people am i not voicing or saying a concern so i'm mind reading with them um do i blame people consistently when things go wrong when or am i totally taking everything on myself and, and being too hard on myself when I've got to give, you know, more um, credit or I need to, you know, realize that there are other people here who played into this too. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of that. It's understanding, you know, what are your core values and beliefs about the way you think the world should operate? And so if you are somebody who thinks, if you're a leader who says, you know, I have to have all the answers, that's going to translate into very specific behavior around not delegating, um, not you know letting other people in and hearing their side of the story or giving them a say in how things unfold. So you really have to do that deeper level work to understand your stumbling blocks and your stumbling points because we all have them. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's crazy to think that you don't or that you wouldn't. And so it's identifying some of that and then going, ooh, that's how – that's why I've been having such a tough time with this particular team or, you know, working in this particular area because I've identified some things that I need to work on. And then it's also to having these conversations with your teams. I think um, one of the things that we need to do better as teams, a couple of things. So one, we're bad at recognizing signs of stress and overload in other people. Mm -hmm. And we're, we have a hard time just having the conversations we need to have to help. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of teams that I work with, 
talk about this culture of nice, like we're in mm. a culture of nice and it's just, you know, we don't say anything to anybody and cause we have to smile and it's all gotta be good. And to me, that is indicative of a low psychologically safe environment, because if mm -hmm. you have a high, if there's high trust present, there's no reason why you can't have a difficult conversation or say the things that need to be said within the context of your team. And so um, so it's kind of putting that whole that whole puzzle together and, you know, just allowing, again, leaders to be human and to be vulnerable and to display empathy and to say, I messed that up or, hey, guess what? I've been on this job for 35 years. I've never seen an example of this before. I don't know what to do. What do you guys think we should do? Mm -hmm. Right. Being able to humble yourself enough to say, I don't know, which is so hard for so many people. Um, it's all of that that's going to start to move the needle and shift the needle for folks. And I would imagine, I mean, so many people seek this guidance out in an individual way, whether it's with an executive coach yes. or with a confidant or a mentor. Um, but when you work across an organization, you can really shift the full sensitivities of a large swath of people, right? Because it's 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 very hard to say, I'm, I'm working on this one thing and I am always cognizant of this after I come back, what I used to do a lot of trainings and, and professional development. I'd come back and the team would be like, you've been on a course. I <laughs> You're working on your framework, you know, and it's so it's it's but when you have an entire organization that's focused on these types of messages, then you can really like build those muscles together and, and work to support one another and say, hey, remember that thing we talked about? You were you know, you were doing a great job there or let's try this next time, um, because then you kind of get that that buy in. And I. I'm actually thinking of something because I think Google's culture foundationally and generally is amazing. We're also one of like the four largest companies in the world. So of course there's many pockets where it's imperfect and, and obviously anybody there would be the first to admit it. Um, but I do think the term of psychological safety goes back to a lot of different traits within an organization and um, you know, both how, how much you connect with an individual leader or how much you feel like your opinion is valued. Um, how much does like this idea of like office politics play into that notion of psychological safety, right? Like almost that feeling of everything you say can and will be used against you, you know, like how do you like navigating that type of, of sentiment, I think, um, can be really challenging for for individuals in an area that doesn't feel psychologically safe. Oh, it's huge. And it's so it's an impact to psychological safety, but it's also a direct job demand that can sprout burnout. Right. So mm -hmm. if if you don't feel like um, if there's office politics and there's red tape and it takes you three weeks and seven layers of bureaucracy to get a simple answer to something, or you don't know why. Um, you know, when I work in healthcare and I work with physicians, a lot of them talk about how their physician lounge is just like horrible and they don't understand why they can't get like a nice piece of furniture or a functioning microwave in their, in their space. And it's just too much of a hassle to go like open a can of worms to, to ask the question so that five months from now they can get an answer to it. Um, and navigating those politics is a huge, that's a job, that's a huge job demand that is a, that can be a source of burnout. And, um, you know, navigating the office politics requires that you have a high psychologically safe environment. Because if, if I, if I am in a political situation or I've, I've stepped into, you know, a little bit of poo, for example, in my organization, and I need to 
ask someone for help or navigate around it or understand it, I have to be able to go to somebody and explain what happened and know that that I'm not going to you know, have a finger pointed at me or have something somehow come back to me at that. So, so it's a, it's a really interesting intersection that you are exposing here because there's, there's a lot of different ways to kind of think about that. Yeah. And, and it, and it depends on, you know, anything that has to do with human dynamics is always very hard to be absolute about in terms of, you know, yes. the, this is the path and this is the definition. It's constantly evolving. You're constantly having to read cues and, you know, everybody's, I, I always remember we uh, had a very challenging client a couple years back in a team that I managed and they were uh, very, um, you know, downright disrespectful at times to my team. And in order to make my team feel, feel safe and not get burnt out, I used to remind them like, you hang up the phone, you are here, they are there. They are in a completely different environment. They don't have the support that you have. They don't have the the trust that you have. So I know this is challenging to work through and just recognize that you're able to be in a place that supports you. Yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, that taught me so much about kind of trying to meet people where they're at. Yes. Um, and sometimes you just don't know what it is they're dealing with on the other end that's manifesting itself into a certain behavior on your side. Um, so in addition to the book, it sounds like you also engage with organizations through the stress and resilience, um, organization. And so do you do like leadership trainings? Do you do coursework? Do you do what individual coaching? How do you guys engage? Yeah. So it's, it's largely my entry point within organizations is usually some type of training or presentation, um, that can take a lot of different forms. Um, sometimes I'll work with individual teams and we'll, you know, go through, you know, different, um, you know, pieces and I'll train them on, you know, what some of these tools are and what the background of this research is and things like that. Um, and then, uh, sometimes it's very targeted at leaders. Sometimes it's both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then oftentimes what I will do is after a training or workshop, um, I will continue to engage with one-on-one coaching. So whether that's a leader who wants some additional tools and strategies and frameworks, whether that's right now, for example, with one organization, I'm doing some group coaching. So a number mm-hmm. of folks kind of in the same organizational level of the of their team said you know we're all interested in learning more about burnout prevention because we all feel like we're kind of at that moment so now we're working together as a group and doing some coaching with that um together so so yeah there's a wide variety of ways that i work with with organizations and engage them but those are some of the more common ones excellent excellent well i think the work that you do is so important and like i said this topic is it really resonates on such a deeply personal level, but also in such a meaningful way that I don't feel like individually responsible for those sentiments, you know? And and I think that's a really, really important needle that you thread in terms of helping to showcase that these are not indicative of an individual failing. There may be some systemic things that you have to look at. And, and um, you know, frankly, I always share with people, if you're not seeing this within your organization, then you have to either try to make a change or see if that organization is the right fit for you um, and really recognize what you can do within that. Um, is there anything that you wanted to leave our listeners with? Um, any, you know, last salient points, um, either for those that are leaders or individual contributors that might be feeling uh, that they're on this brink? 
I think that um, one of I think one of the biggest things that came out of my my thinking with this book is that. I think initially we might think we have to do these big sweeping things to, to prevent burnout. We have to make these wild shifts in our behavior. Our organization has to do something profoundly different. And that um, preventing burnout is really built on like five to 10 minute little micro interactions. It's, hmm. it's, you know, saying thank you more, or it's, you know, just reaching out to a colleague and saying, hey, how are you doing? Or um, giving somebody an opportunity to say something in a meeting so that you're hearing somebody's perspective. It's just, just these little moments really of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to spend 30 minutes today at work doing something that's most meaningful for myself. Um, it's recognizing when I am catastrophizing because that's very wearing and, you know, takes a lot of energy. And I'm going to apply the framework that Paula has in my book, in her book to, to help me with that. So it's these really little practices um, that we just need to be doing more consistently and more front of mind that I think can really, you know, collectively move the needle within teams and systems. So that would be my parting message. Yeah. And, and I think it's going back to the beginning of our conversation where, you know, you mentioned you can't yoga retreat your way out of this because yeah. you're going to love that yoga retreat and you're going to feel so wonderful, but then you're going to come back to all of the damaging systemic issues that were there when you left. So it's hundred percent. And it gets back to the causes of burnout. The causes of burnout are things like high workload, low autonomy, no, no colleague and leader support, unfair environments, um, you know, values disconnects. My values don't match the organization's values. And, and yoga and all of those things are fantastic. They're just not going to fix those deeper core, deeper core issues. So yep. that's where we need to focus. Excellent. Well, your your book is out uh, as of this release date. It's out on March 16th. Again, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Wellbeing and Resilience. Um, and your work can be found on stressandresilience.com. And I thank you so much for, again, the work that you're doing, the message that you're getting out there. Um, it will have impact on many, many organizations and thereby individuals. And thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you, Bethany. This was just a joy and a treat. I, I loved, I love your, your questions. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Agree. I loved your answers. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. Music